0: Never too small gave us the focus that we really required to get through the first lockdown. Um I think without it, it would have been very hard to keep the team galvanized. It, well, the reality is it would have been very hard to keep the team together because uh you wouldn't have been able to stand out six weeks or whatever would potentially come down the track and just keep all those salaries on full time and it I guess that was one of the the positive things that kind of came out of it. All we were able to keep everyone on full-time throughout that period.
1: Hello, my friends, Nigel here, and welcome to Backable, the podcast where we explore the top performance habits in both business and life. Today Tim sits down with James McPherson, Managing Director of New Mac Video Agency co-founder and commercial director of Never Too Small, the YouTube channel that showcases small format architecture and design that has garnered over 1.3 million subscribers in recent times. And if that isn't enough, James is also the chairman of the Biggest Ever Blokes Lunch Melbourne, a charitable organization that has raised over $4.5 million to support prostate cancer research. We discussed the changing face of media in recent years, the reality behind growing and maintaining a successful YouTube channel, the challenges that COVID has brought to bear in the production space and the personal gratification of giving to others. It's a great episode. Hope you enjoy.
2: I want to obviously get into never too small because you know, you're know you in the top 1% of content creators in the world, which is regardless of everything else. I mean, that's the fact. It is a milestone like it's a four-minute mile, I reckon, <laughs> Like to be honest with you. But in NewMac, I mean, you're a traditional high-end production company for many years. You've moved from a service-based business to creating your own product being never too small. But can you take me back to prior to the launch of this? How did you even get to the point of, that transition? Because I think in there is some, there's some magic whether you admit it or not. Not many do make a leap and be successful at it.
0: Yeah. So so that was a good potted summary. I I guess it goes back about 10 years that Newmax has been around. And uh, of that 10 years, Never Too Small has been around for about two and a half. So if I'm kind of going back three years and painting a picture, Newmax a a content creation company, principally video, uh, working with brands and advertising agencies to create branded content. And probably the first five years of New Max story was just one of really constant growth. Uh, I think we arrived at a good time in that kind of time between tape to digital uh, when uh, the, the industry was pretty much run by TV cameramen working on their days off. Yeah, right. And became a bit more professionalized. And I think there were people entering the market who probably picked up these skills at university doing um, TV journalism. And certainly that was the case with New Max. So we picked up corporate clients and really grown if i reflect on it in quite a lazy way certainly growth was easy back then right uh, so five, five years on newmax grown from a, a sole operator to a team of about 12 ftes and it was a big show and you needed to jam a lot of content a lot of video into the top of that to make it work and i guess that time then kind of is overlaid with a a real change in the industry where companies Uh, like some of our clients back then, the Telstra's and the University of Melbourne's and whatnot, why why are we paying for all this content to advertising agencies and small companies like us? We can do this in-house. And that was a thing that really rolled across all our customers at once. And at the same time, the advertising agencies had the same notion, well, let's bring it in-house. And um, really, within about 6 to 12 months, we probably lost about 50% of our total revenue. And it was a real shock. It was a real shock to us.
2: Was that in the first five years, James? Sorry, just to, to get the timings right. Probably timeline. This is probably year six, year seven, where we've reached the um, zenith of our growth,
0: and we never really kind of got to the point where we got on top of it. We just kept growing, but never focused on making money or yeah, business principles. Right. So, I think it was a, it was a certain maturity there, and in round year six, really, it, it it kind of stopped, and that that was. Probably where the seeds of never too small came out of, because it was like we, we need to change what we're doing.
2: James, can I pull you back before we jump there? Because you said something that I do want to pick you up on, which is lazy growth. Because I I know you're a humble guy, but I've never met anyone with. Lazy growth. I mean, you must have been doing some quality work because I mean, there's a lot of people listening here will be going, geez, I'd love six years of lazy growth, but I, I don't want to dismiss the efforts you went to, even though it might have not been what we'd say um, strategized growth.
0: Yeah, another way I characterize it is just 100% word of mouth growth. Right. So, where there was no systems, uh, really to support sales because sales just happened. Yeah, right. And I think that that was the shock really. Once you then get to the critical stage and you relied on word of mouth growth for such a long extent, we got to the point where, wow, we we need X amount coming in mm. per month. And once the tap was turned off from really that word of mouth growth that we just relied upon, or when one or two customers that really represented too much of your total turnover, just stopped spending. It just it fell away very quickly. And that's kind of where we found ourselves about twenty eighteen.
2: So was it a combination of obviously having a couple of key clients that bought the content in-house, but was it then supporting an infrastructure without a systematic way of approaching growth? Because I I don't want to sound too fluffy, but yeah, I mean you obviously were doing something very well. Even other companies then weren't growing at the rate you probably were during that initial six years.
0: It's it's entirely possible. Look, I, I don't think we were entirely special. I think we were pretty good. You know, I've always been able to look at competitors and, you know, see the one or two that I really admire yep. and and look to. The good ones are still here. I think they grew differently. Yep. I think we grew in a non-strategic way. I think that was appropriate characterization. And What um, would
2: you do in reflection of that? Because I know we. I want to get to the excitement of, of never too small. But in reflection, would you have changed anything now?
0: Well, I guess that's the beauty of making mistakes in business. You need to make them before you can learn from them. And um, look, what would I do differently now? I would probably have team members who I uh, empower to make better decisions as opposed to just letting a lot of decisions go unchecked or requ- they were required to be made by me at that time. I, look, I think I just, I reserve too much of the decision-making within myself and particularly as it related to... Production systems and areas of the business, which I probably wasn't best to make the call on.
2: It's an interesting thing in reflection of what you've managed to grow in two years, regardless of the humility you'll put around it, is exceptional. And I think in terms of an operation, how you're running that now, there's probably some lessons that have been pulled from the first, you
0: know. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if I was to compare and contrast what we are now to what yeah. we were, yeah, please. it's just more of a discipline around costs, really, at the end of the day. I think when you're growing fast, it's just so easy to. You know, grab that Salesforce subscription. Go to the HubSpot one. Layer them upon layer. Buy the gear. Get the operating leases in, and we we did. We just found ourselves in that situation that we had the cost structure that reflected a bigger business, but without really the rigor that I'd bring to any growth now. Yep. That every ongoing cost you're actually having a much harder look at as yep. a team. We we actually ask the harder questions around these things. Software as a service subscriptions can really really. <laughs> really sneak up on you. That's one of the things that kind of – and operating leases, yeah. yeah. They kind of really snowballed into just a real, really nasty figure was, as we kind of layered those costs on top of each other.
2: Sure. So let's fast forward because you've given birth to a baby that's essentially – Sprinting. Can you take us through the birth of Never Too Small? Because it's, I mean, really is incredible in two years where it's at. Yeah, well, it surprises us, which is <laughs> is one of the things. So it's, and if I was to say we ever looked at
0: this and thought we'd have one point three million subscribers in three years, that was just no chance. There's no chance. So if we go back to the Yep. The origins are never too small. It kind of came out of that really difficult period for us because I think we just recognized we just weren't going to be able to do what we did. Uh, big businesses weren't going to pay us the kind of turnover that we've just been able to expect year on year. And we had to become masters of our own destiny as it related to content creation. And the first thing was, what do we do best? And it was... Narrative driven documentary style storytelling. And we just thought we we need to be able to showcase this. And I guess it's a cliche and it's not a new thing in um, production, but it was like, what are our studio projects? What are we working on? Mm. So, you know, certainly not an original idea. And I I put it to the team. I said, guys, what's adjacent to our interests, things we love and passionate about, we can make great content about, but also do it in a documentary style storytelling format that I can use to show clients what we do. And uh, we, we pinged a few ideas around, uh, you know, some of them were kind of, I love beer and wine. So, and, and look, to be fair, some of these ideas are still on the back burner. We were actually about to embark on a documentary series about uh, social housing because we're based in Collingwood. Uh, it just, that one didn't get off the ground <laughs> for various reasons. But our editor, Colin Shee, lived in this small apartment. Uh, he just bought probably two years before, and it um, might be about four or forty squares on Spencer Street, and he just had begun this process. I think Marie Kondo had come out, and there were a bunch of similar books about really minimalizing your life and simplifying your life breaking it down to things you control. And I think in the process, Cole was searching for apartments, small apartment design and interior design, and there was just nothing out there. Right. So he would pretty much stumbled across really this unmet need because he was like, well, geez, I'm not special in this respect. A lot of people live in my bedroom apartments. Yeah. So he said, look, I, I want to make a series about small format design. So he presented it to T team. We just said, go for it. So he kind of got a few of the guys together and on days that we weren't producing content, I think it was over a period of about six weeks, he made about three films focusing on small format design. The first was with the local architect, Ben Edwards, who had run this project where he created a one-bedroom hotel room in an old 1960s flat, which is Episode 1, if you check that out, and fundamentally Ben's creative concept was, well, how can I take this real estate product, which wasn't particularly value, ground floor, facing a fence or something like that, but in a really good location and, and turn it into fundamentally a mini luxury design showreel. And that was um, called Mini Lux, the apartment. I guess one of the interesting things that Colin brought to it was he said, let's also, and this wasn't something I'd thrown at Colin, it was actually his idea to his credit. He said, I, I want to do something quite simple. Uh, I, I want it to be something that I can do with a one-person camera uh show. So that's just a, a cameraman going out, setting up a camera, doing the interview and shooting overlay. And I, I want to be able to do it in a short amount of time. And he'd really taken inspiration from Monocle and the New York Times. And that was the kind of discipline he overlaid over this as a exercise. So they went out and they made three videos. And, of course, we published... And then there was nothing. It was just crickets, like, you know, chirping. No, 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 one, no one bloody watched it for three weeks. It was awesome. It was an awesome film. Um, and it sat there, you know. Sort of all right. Well, let's keep, keep publishing them. And I think Colin started on a once-a-month publishing schedule, so it was pretty low frequency. So wait,
2: wait a minute, James. So you're saying, just so I understand, you were having a pivot moment in your core business, You've invested yep. the excess time into a project. You've done it on we like doing this and we're good at this, so let's give it a go. You've spent the time and resources six weeks to get it. You've published it, no traction, and you've gone. Let's double down. Most people would pull it at that point.
0: In <laughs> AFL parlance, yeah, nah. Um, it's a, but it's a bit of it's a, it's a bit of both because I guess we we're fulfilling our core purpose, which was to make good content because we're making yeah. good content. Yeah, yeah. So. The reality is, I don't know if I ever expected that we would find the audience we would. So I guess it was a success from my point of view. It was doing exactly what I wanted, creating a beautiful serialized piece of video content that I could share with clients, if you know what I mean. Say, well, hey, this is like something you could do for your branded content idea. But what it did, what nearly happened at this point was um, we got busy at work. We got really busy again. And we didn't publish again for another three months. But in the time in between, we're really busy, Uh, the Google algorithm picked up episode three and it went gangbusters comparatively. But it it gave us a start. And um, as soon as we got within the algorithm, uh, well, the algorithm started recommending this content, uh, I guess the way it works is if people watch it, engage with it, they're going to recommend it again. So once we got started, we were started because. People watched it. It got recommended more. And, um, probably three months later, Colin said, James, uh, here's a thousand dollars. And that was our first thousand dollars of AdSense revenue. Yes. And I guess I'd never appreciated as a business owner that you could actually make money out of this because we, we'd never approached it from that point of view. Yes. So I said, that's quite interesting, Colin. Let's make some more. Um, and really <laughs> that there on in. We were publishing and, of course, we never really made the money that covered the cost of the exercise for the first year and a half, but I think what I was sufficiently encouraged by was that it just grew month on month as far as audience numbers went. So you had a bit of a sense we're on to something and really this kind of overlaps with the period where I started working with Philonimo. Uh,
2: Full disclosure, we've worked together before. Even when we first met, I think even Never Too Small was seen as a luxury for the capacity you had to invest in something that was potentially a a long shot, if you look in terms of where this could be a commercial success. For those of you who, and you'll see the links below of how to get to the channel, I'll give you this warning. The first time I saw Never Too Small, and I, I think it was about 10 p.m., I'll just flick it over for, you know, just see what James is up to. And I found myself at 2 a.m., still watching videos because it's essentially a YouTube hole the content's unbelievable. It's not good. It's as good as you would see on network television, except more authentic. So check it out and you'll see the links and go and watch all of them because they're actually just inspiringly brilliant. I mean, this simplicity, it's akin to a minimalist architect. Do you know why that initial third episode actually got into the Google algorithm stream? Was there anything you can pinpoint?
0: The algorithm... I think
2: we understand it better two and a half years in,
0: yep. but it's still a mystery. You know, I probably don't want to get into trouble with the Google people. We, we recently got an account manager and you, you probe them about it. Of course, you still don't get any great answers, but certainly from our experience with the broader community and you kind of find yourself in workshops and whatnot, thumbnails and titles, that's what's going to be fundamentally responsible for your success at the end of the day. And then, of course, relevance. It's like why someone's searching for it. So I think there is a lot of um, more search-like. Searchability. Yes, an SEO-type racket than anything else. But but that doesn't explain the zeitgeisty aspect of it. Like I think that's the hardest thing to tap into. It's just something that causes that delight for its audience uh, that they just can't find elsewhere. And um, that's what creates the snowball effect because... Uh, as it turns out, the way we title our videos and the thumbnails we use, if you took it to um, a consultant, they'd probably say, you're doing it wrong. So I guess there's a lesson to take away from that as well is that we're probably using suboptimum titles. But the thing is, we've done it in such a way, in a consistent way over time that yeah, it's on brand our bad. audience... Rec- yeah, yeah, exactly. And we actually ran an experiment recently with our most recent title. We sent it out with, um, we did our titles in a different way where it was more of a headline, then it said never too small and had the episode number. And um, it just didn't get out of the blocks like a normal episode wow. because I, I don't have a scientific basis from which to kind of really fall back on here other than we made the choice to change it within 24 hours and then it took off again Wow! as it relates to performance. But that could have also been an algorithmic tweet because you just don't know. Yeah, it's sure. a sample size of one. And unfortunately, there is no A-B testing in YouTube at the moment. So, well,
2: James, can I ask you this? Because I think one of the, as I said, for everyone who watches it, you'll, you'll subscribe because it's just quality content. So I think you're talking about the front bit, which is as soon as you click on it, you get exactly what you hope it's going to be in terms of entertainment. There's a lot of ingredients that are making this experience of, of consuming that content high quality. It's obviously the reason why there's also 1.3 million people subscribing, not just watching and leaving. But did you start the channel with a plan around this content? I mean, does it take months to curate this sort of thing?
0: I think um, if we go back to the start, um, Colin probably started a bit wider in what he was attempting to do, but um, Never Too Small was about small design. So even if you have a look at the episodes, episode two is about a miniature artist, and you'll see that it's completely out of place amongst the rest of the content. Um, And similarly, we we did a bit more with tiny homes back in the day. What we've just discovered over time is that people were coming for the apartments. I think there's a bit more of an urban Kind of um, slant to our audience. And I think uh, probably one of the core reasons for our success has been the consistency in the way Colin has kept the scope of the episode really simple. And to be fair, we started with a three minute format back in the day, too. It's probably grown out to eight minute episodes now for a number of reasons. I think the audience were asking for it, but Cole wanted to be able to, to deliver what we needed to. Because they are small spaces, you know, they're not grand design, five-bedroom, five-bathroom mansions, they're single-bedroom places. So I, th- I think that's kind of core to the success of the series.
2: I feel um, one of the things that was resonating with me is it, I was trying to just work out what is the real genius behind it. The thing I really loved is the authenticity that's created by having the person who's done it narrate it. It's a very strange experience. If we watch a grand design, it's the host and then you get the few snippets. But I think um, it's an incredibly engaging way to consume. That's
0: that's deliberate. Yeah. It was certainly a deliberate decision back in the early days that we did focus on the designer. Colin's, um he's typically got a pretty, oh geez, no, I'm going to verbal him here, but he's got a dim view of the, the person on the street, the everyman. The everyday YouTuber, I think, um, yeah. it was really about creating a platform for those creative minds that bring these designs to life and that they deserve the platform. And I, and I think you have pointed it out too, that a lot of the people, a lot of the, the anecdotal feedback we get through the, the comments and whatnot is that people come for that moment of zen. It's that kind of meditative four minutes of listening to the designer. Uh, we don't use any tricks with the videos. Like uh, You'd be surprised with how simple they are. There's, there's no sliders or gimbals or anything like that. But there might be a drone shot only when it actually is called for. But it, it's a lot of static shots just showing design in a very slow... I don't know. There might be a bit of a slow cooking kind of overlay, but it's done slowly. And that's what they come back for, I think, more often than not, is that just little moment moment
2: of calm take me then into where it is now because you've gone from sort of last three years we're at 1.34 i think as of last night million subscribers it's obviously becoming its own entity and it's growing that where, where does never too small grow up from here
0: yeah it's an it's exciting time it really is For Never Too Small. And in some ways, even though how disruptive COVID has been for everyone, and look, you know, I don't want to make light of it because it's been just absolutely shattering for so many people. But what it did with Never Too Small was um, it meant that New Mac, who's the, the business that Never Too Small has grown out of, had nothing to do. But what we were able to do was galvanize around Never Too Small. And probably do jobs that we wouldn't have been able to do under any other circumstance. So during this period, we've just about finished the TV show, which is fundamentally wow. us repurposing um, never too small episodes to create a 12 by 30 minute format, which wow. will be selling internationally. Well, we are selling presently um, through FRED. Yeah, uh, there. I'm um, uh, a Melbourne distribution company that's off the back of WTFN. They make shows like Bondi Vet and Paramedics and a, a lot of other reality formats. But look, they are local, and we we do like working with local companies where we can because it's it's such a new industry to us. It's just important to have people who we can talk to and and fundamentally have there in front of us and trust in and around these things. Uh, we've got a coffee table book that came out of the series wow. which we're writing presently which we'll be hoping to have uh, on sale by August next year, if not a little bit before, through um, Smith Street Books, which is a fantastic pop culture publisher, uh, Paul McNally, who just came to us and said, look, we love it. We want to get involved. And look, that's fantastic in itself. And of course, having something to sell has put the pressure on us to build up a retail presence. So uh, we've launched our new publishing website, never dot smallcom Amazing. Which unfortunately we had to pay a lot of money for the domain name for, but I guess that kind of happens <laughs> with .coms these days, and uh, that's really going to be probably the centre of our, our our digital universe. But we're not we're not super frantic about it. But if never too small is going to work, we know that we need to be able to uh, bring revenue streams through our own channels, and YouTube is our greatest uh, asset but also our greatest risk is a business because we, our business is fundamentally uh, concentrated within that channel. And I guess beyond this, uh, there's a few other media pieces. I, I, look, we don't have a good Facebook presence, so we're looking to wrap that up. Instagram has been a neglected channel, but we brought in a new director into the business, well, a director and a, an owner into the new Never Too Small business, which I've neglected to mention. Um, uh, so Colin, who developed it, has equity in this business, uh, myself. And a new director who's come on to bring that digital expertise. Amazing. And, uh, he's doing a fantastic job on the publishing side and, uh, really kind of getting that built really in an MVP form to just be this new digital business.
2: James, just for all our sort of listeners, because a lot of them are business owners and people like this, that you're basically sitting on the launch pad. You've got this rocket strapped to you and could potentially go anywhere. What are the things that, I don't want to say keep you up at night because I think it's more an excitement rather than when we use that phrase as a connotation to worries, but where do you find your mind wandering around what you want this to be or what you hope the next stages are?
0: As it relates to risk, certainly Google and our reliance on Google is considerable and YouTube. So a uh, change in the algorithm or certainly in the way that they choose to share content really could be, you know, the death knell for um for never too small. I don't think that's the case. I- I'm a bit more optimistic about it. But um like COVID really hurt. It's like we weren't able to travel to make profiles. So we've kind of probably gone back a year in our ability to kind of grow or get that snowball effect as it relates to YouTube. So where we might have put on 100,000 subscribers a few months ago. Yeah. Look, well, we probably only did about 15,000 because we're no longer getting the support from Google because we're not publishing as frequently as we're like with our episodes. So that, that was a shock. And that's something that keeps me up yeah, at night. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a drop off of, um, you know, it was it 85% within two months. Yeah. So that's given us a bit of an insight. Look, to be fair, there are a few other things that kind of. Played into that. We launched a new format experimenting during lockdown as well called Small Living, which was a magazine format like Better Homes and Gardens for hipsters, make, making kimchi and stuff like that, which is great. And, and look, 10% of our audience loved it, but really 80% of our audience didn't want a bar of it because they were coming for the design, not sure. for the cooking and the making and the hobbies. So by continuing to lead into that, Google punished us because we were jamming something into the machine. That um our audience were saying no to. So that was a massive yeah. lesson for us. You can experiment, but you, you need to be able to pivot once you've had enough feedback. But the problem is one bit of feedback's never enough. So you have to you have to try, but then be ready to well, kill your babies, really. So
2: you, you have to have a little bit of pain in it. Yeah. And I guess
0: I'm not entirely answering your question here, but what we have to do now is we have to go back to our knitting. Even though we can't travel because we're still in lockdown here in Melbourne, like we're just gonna have to pay and trust people to make episodes in other other territories for us. Wow, you know, so that means spitting up people in London or New York or Sydney sure. or Wellington or Auckland to get out there and do this for us. And it's going to cost us money, but we also know that what's going to cost us more is trying to do something that isn't going to work for our audience. So that's what keeps me up with Google. As it relates to the future, look, I know that you're always worried about the next thing, I guess. And you can't control that. But what's the next never too small that's going to do it in a more interesting, delightful way than us? And you think, well, are we investing enough in it presently? And because it it has been a business that's just been self-funded until now, well, it still is self-funded. I just yeah. might be using a bit more debt to, <laughs> to, to push it along. But, um, you know, because I think we're at that investment stage where it's like I, I think you might have to go a bit harder and maybe put yourself in a more uncomfortable position to ensure you get the growth to own your market share or or your share of your market's imagination, certainly in the case of never too small. So obviously getting things like the TV show out and maybe looking at new TV formats are probably yep. ahead of us. But most importantly, finding a way to actually... Well, I know we're talking to a business owner audience, so it's okay to probably talk like this. But we, we need to find those products and services that we can actually sell to people who have that affinity for never too small. Mm. Because um, you, know, you can't build a business on Google AdSense revenue. And certainly that's come home well and truly for us in the last few months. <laughs>
2: It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because it, re- it really is new media. I mean, you've got 1.34 million people and it's still having to do the fundamentals of any business. Let's diversify our income streams, work out where our opportunities are, run experiments, take the rap on the knuckles when we get it wrong. But it's, it's almost, um, it's a business on steroids, isn't it? Because you get the lessons a lot quicker. Instead of a decade, you get it in 10 minutes.
0: It's exactly that. And I guess the, the scary thing is, it's not widely understood. Uh, it's not widely understood by the people who work for these companies to a large extent, because it's all algorithmically based, and they keep their, their their cards so close to their chest. And then it's like means well, you're going to have to potentially find the right partners, and that it's a case of who do you trust? Where are these people in
2: the world? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, everyone wants a piece of you now. You're a rocket oh, ship. They-
0: they do and they don't, though, because it's a big show out there. Like We're minnows still. Yeah. Like we're, we're tiny when you start looking at the, the broader market. So we, we've started to have some of those interactions. But as it relates to the top 1,000 YouTube yeah. channels or whatnot, we're, 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 we're miles off. We're miles off. From an Australian perspective, I think we've only just found the scale that at least we can have conversations with Google. If you know what I mean, like like they actually recognize you as being alive as opposed to just being, (laughs) you know, a set set of numbers that they'll let an algorithm deal with. Yeah, yeah. And and that's been one of the nice things. And I guess that's a scary thing for other people entering this space. Jesus, it's a big journey getting there. If you have to get a million subscribers before Google actually recognizes you're alive, (laughs) that's pretty frightening in itself. James, are you enjoying it? Oh, absolutely. Jeez, if... Without getting too dramatic, if we didn't have never too small, we'd be in a very difficult place at the moment. Yeah, I think there'd be a different shape to our business because, unfortunately, my former business model from ten years ago, I think it probably had reached its use by date. Yeah, it either had to go to a point where we could grow indefinitely by kind of hitting that right price point. You know, probably on the cheap and nasty side. Well, you had to get smaller and just more expert and kind of go to the top of the quality pyramid. But the reality was uh, we were probably closer to the top but had a cost base that needed to be more going dead the other way yeah, to actually sure. make that work. So, uh, am I excited about it? Absolutely, because I've, we've got a business in which we can actually enjoy the dividends of our creative endeavors. We're, yeah. We've always been on the supplier side where we've been creating, you know, beautiful creative and content for brands, direct companies and advertising agencies to deliver to their direct clients. And now we get to be our own client. And that's been a massively liberating thing as as a business owner because I can look down the track and instead of seeing a hole in a monthly bookings list, Mm. I can say, well, I'm going to move a project there for never too small and I'm going to spend my own money because I'm sufficiently confident that in six months, that's going to pay two times, three times. self-investment. And I wouldn't have been in a position like that before just in the regular production company model. Oh, yeah. Sorry. One of the other exciting things is, of course, we, we, we've, and this is amazing for a production company, because of Never Too Small, we've been able to have our first interaction with Screen Australia. So <laughs> we've been making films and content yeah. for eight years, but we've always been outside that space. But of course, because of Never Too Small, um, and through one of their YouTube programs called Skip Ahead, we're actually getting bookings coming through from Never Too Small that the team can deliver yeah that's it's 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 hugely exciting hugely exciting
2: we speak to a lot of people and some people you're really happy for their success you do so many good things but i want to talk a little bit around your philanthropy
0: yeah i'm not not sure where to start on this one um well, I, I guess it comes into self-interest to some extent. Um,
2: of course, you take it the way to make people feel like you're not contributing. Self-interest, fine, but wait a minute. <laughs>
0: well, well, actually, let, oh, well, let me let me kind of be a bit clearer. when I say about self-interest, um, I work with an extraordinary group of people to help uh, really much-needed funds for prostate cancer research. About four years ago, my father died of prostate cancer and um, really... When he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, one of the things that I guess he wanted to do to make sense of it was like, well, hey, this is going to be a large part of my life the the number of years that I have to live. And and he decided to start an event with PCFA to raise money for prostate cancer research called The Biggest Ever Blokes Lunch. And he launched that back in Shepparton in regional Victoria. And really since then, over the last 11 years, it's become one of the major community fundraisers out of Shepparton and i guess other than being just extraordinarily proud of my father to kind of really be able to create some real meaning out of the whole experience of having prostate cancer and you know it was it was a it was a real bugger it was a, a, yeah. but he also knew that cancers and these things like these are universal so many people go through this and and have this have been through it themselves have yeah. family members and we're all going to live through it so uh, i guess I guess at that period, probably five years ago, I was challenged by a, a mentor. He said, "Well, you should run one of these," and I, I was just like, "I can't do that." <laughs> what did he say? Your father's doing run the Melbourne one. There's no Melbourne one. I said no outright because I'm yeah. like, I can't do that. I, I don't have the um the status within a community to be able to do that. Why would anyone go with me? But I, I reflected on it and I thought, oh, this is something I'd like to do. For my father, and also for for me, and I'm a father of two sons. You know, prostate cancer runs in families, and uh, you know it's going to be certainly a part of our lives going forward. So uh, we had a crack. We started the biggest ever blokes' lunch, and this is a long anecdote. And I'm I'm getting the the wind up,
2: but uh, (laughs) there's no wind up from me, mate. This is important. You're winding yourself up. You take as long as you want. This is a really great story.
0: And I'd, I'd encourage anyone who's ever had an idea or something like this. But uh in doing it, I had to get a committee together and I just reached out to some friends and we ran with it. We had a very similar format to the Sheppin and event, you know, I got Dave O'Neill involved and we, we we got some corporate sponsors involved. I think Bendigo Bank came along and Nelson Alexander, uh real estate agents, you know, I got the bloke who sold me a house to be on the committee. You know, I did all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And uh it's just turned out to be the best thing ever. Like we raised maybe 30 grand for prostate cancer research. And then we ran it again and then we needed a bigger venue and that grew every year. And, um, of course, last year we, we managed to raise $180,000 for prostate cancer research out of a single lunch with the support of some great brands like Sportsbet and um, Pepperstone and Abercrombie and Kent. Through the process, I've been able to meet all these fantastic people who are just so willing to get involved. Yeah. I've got a fantastic committee of just extraordinary individuals who all become great friends. And it's just such a, a life-affirming experience to run this event. And then the reality is organizations like PCFA and the fantastic researchers that we get to fund. And um, Dr. Roxanne, who have been able to fund um, out of Peter Mac and Monash yeah. University, I get to do the most extraordinary research. And they're so grateful. But it's just the reality is we're just happy to do it, if you know what I mean. And it does become a bit embarrassing. But I guess if I was going to say anything to anyone who's ever had an idea of doing something like this, just get some good people around you and do it. Like they can start small and turn into big events. And of course, we can't run the event this year because of COVID. But it's kind of extraordinary. Like Sportsbet have still supported to the tune of about 15 grand. And we'll get to make a 25 grand donation, not even running an event Incredible. to continue to support prostate cancer. In a year where they've just been gutted, like as you can imagine, all the organisations that you'd support, they've had nothing come through from their community fundraising, probably. And it will be hard because times are tough. Yeah. And I know I'm painting a pretty rosy picture at all, but it is, it's it's very tough. But to actually have done these things and be able to get the money together still, it's 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 a great thing. And uh, look, if anyone's interested, biggesteverblokeslunch.com. Get on board. The event will be back next year, and it's a, it's a great lunch uh, by table.
2: Absolutely. And James, I wanted to bring that up because I think for all our listeners here, and I know we're curating an audience that believe in doing business right. And I think when people put together the timelines that you've been speaking about, you had your business, you're going through some tough times in your business, your dad's diagnosed and getting sick on top of all of that, you then decide to pick up a major event and contribute not only to his vision, but also the local community in which is going to take a lot of your time and energy And then you get some success like you're having at the moment with a new brand. I just think that we're all cheering for your ongoing success. And I just think that's what business is all about. When it's easy to say, no, I'll focus on myself contributing to others and doing that. And it's an amazing event and the links will be on there. Everyone, please get involved, follow James, follow the things that him and his team is doing. But as I said, I think he's truly one of the good blokes and um, deserves everything coming his way in the the years to come because watch this space. It's an incredible thing. We're excited mate and thank you for all your time and sharing so honestly your story because it is it's really inspiring
0: you're very kind tim it's been a pleasure <laughs> thanks mate <laughs> thank
2: you champion
1: <laughs> well that's the show for this week thanks for listening and thanks to james for making the time to come and have a chat i highly recommend jumping over to the never too small channel and subscribing if you haven't yet you can do that via the links below and we've also included links to find out more about NUMAC, which is James's video agency. And of course, we've included a link there to the biggest ever blokes lunch if you want to support the fight against prostate cancer. Now, you can head on over to backable.ai to access all the downloadables we've put together. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Backable and Full then make sure to join our Facebook group and follow us on one or all of the platforms you can find in the show description below. As always, if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. That's all from us from now. Have a great week and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye.